For a moment, just imagine that you're a candidate running for office. Doesn't matter the size of the race. It can be on the national or on the local level. Just imagine you're out there campaigning tirelessly, all because you raised your hand and said, I will serve as a voice of the people. Now, if that were you, wouldn't you want to make it as easy as possible to get the support you need to run a successful campaign? Like getting donations from supporters anywhere and everywhere. Well, that's exactly what our sponsor, ActBlue, does for candidates and organizations of all sizes. As the less leading online fundraising platform, ActBlue makes it possible for people, no matter the size of their contribution, to participate in our democracy and support races far and wide, from county commissioners to presidential campaigns. Go to actblue.com slash directory to find out how you can get involved. And follow ActBlue on Instagram at actblueorg and on Twitter and Facebook at actblue to keep up with the latest in grassroots fundraising. Welcome back, Brown Girls. It's Ashanti, the host of the Brown Girls Guide to Politics. Today, we're talking to Megan Hatcher Mays, Director of Policy at Indivisible. She's been on the front lines of Supreme Court happenings from the first inklings of Kavanaugh to the current avalanche of buzz around Judge Katanji Brown Jackson. Truly revolutionary news is going down at the Supreme Court. From the ugly truths we learned about legislators who sent hate to Judge Brown Jackson before her name was even announced, to the historic importance of having her on the court, Megan's here to talk us through it. Join us to hear how Megan got into her work at Indivisible, what she's learned from years of watching the court, and what it's like to finally cover a nomination she's rooting for. I hope you enjoy this episode. Megan, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. So really excited to talk to you about your journey, this amazing moment that we're in with the Supreme Court. But first, I want to talk to you a little bit about the work that Indivisible does. When Trump got elected, so many people were asking me, Ashanti, what do you think we're going to see? And I said, we're really going to see how fragile democracy really is under Trump. And with Indivisible, it was created during Trump's presidency to help protect our democracy, but it has done so much more and become just far-reaching then and now. So just tell us a little bit about the work that Indivisible has been doing and some of the things that we will see coming. So yes, after Trump was elected, I think it was like looking down a really long hallway and every door was closed. That's what it felt like to me, that there was no kind of escaping this hallway. What Indivisible has done, I mean, the first three years of our existence were about resisting, right? Trying to prevent bad things from happening. And we were pretty successful. I mean, I think there were some real significant threats to um, Obamacare, to other things. But Trump was pretty successful in doing things unilaterally. So doing things through executive actions that were really harmful to immigrants, refugees, 
people of color and to women. It was almost the evilness with which they concocted some of these plans would be impressive as if it wasn't so scary. The last two years have been about trying to get stuff, trying to get Democrats to do things that will materially benefit people in their everyday lives. And we've gotten some really solid COVID relief packages through. Um, we fell short on some really significant democracy reforms earlier this year. And so I think that kind of leads us into our next phase, which is making sure we have a Congress that is filled with Democrats who actually want to do things. So fewer people in the Joe Manchin, Kirsten Cinema type, and more people who actually want to pass laws that will make this country better and really create an inclusive democracy for the first time ever. Because there were Donald Trumps before Donald Trump, and there will continue to be Donald Trumps after Donald Trump. What he exposed was just like what you said, is our democracy is so fragile um, that we need to bolster it to prevent another Donald Trump type from ever succeeding his, you know, I don't know, failing upwards into the presidency in the same way that that Trump himself did. And so the only way to do that is to kind of like minimize the influence that people like Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema have in the Senate so that we can actually, you know, start to address some of these problems. Yes, the work will always be there. It will always continue. And you've really been at the forefront of this work. This season, we're focusing on trailblazers. You're a trailblazer from your work with Indivisible to the unapologetic conversations that you have about representation, just to everything that's going on in the political world. So tell the listeners, how did you get your start in getting politically and civically engaged? You know, when I think about it myself, it's hard to really, it's hard to really answer it. it. It just feels, my whole life feels kind of like a happy accident. And I don't know if everybody feels that way. And then you just kind of look back and say, well, maybe it was this decision or that decision. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> kind of got, got me there. But it also, but I think maybe a lot of people just feel like you just kind of float through and then all of a sudden it just kind of clicks and it's hard to say exactly how. But of course, you know, I worked hard also, let the record reflect. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I, I got my undergraduate degree in art history. So it's like a big leap from that to, to doing what I do now. But I, I went to law school. Um, I started law school in 2010. And the reason that I went is because I was so worried. I think even then really worried about what happens to people when they get caught up in the legal system, but like worried about a judiciary that would go out of its way to make life more difficult for people. It started, you know, in 2000. That was the first election I ever voted in. And in 2000, the Supreme Court gave the presidency to George W. Bush. He didn't even win. <laughs> they just right. handed him the presidency. It, st- it stressed me out really badly. So I think that was kind of like my, my awakening. And going through law school and having clients, even as a student, you can work with clients. It was just like, God, this is just when you're doing direct services, you're just dealing with like a million systemic problems all coming to you in the form of one person. So you can try to do your best to fix what's going on with that one person, but you're not going to fix the millions of little things that contributed to that person being right in front of you. And so I think that's when I kind of shifted my interest from working in direct services, like working in uh, as like a public defender, for example, I had interned at a couple of different public defender offices and working more in advocacy, which at least attempts to fix the underlying problems that create the need for direct services in the first place. 
Um, so yeah, I moved to DC in 2013 after I graduated from law school and worked for, I worked for a bunch of different nonprofits, but I got my first Hill job working for Congresswoman Eleanor Holmes Norton. She's the non-voting delegate for the District of Columbia. I started working for her in 2015 and it was just, it was difficult. Uh, just, it's just difficult to work on the Hill. It's long hours and it's stressful. And we were in the minority the whole time I worked for her. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, not yeah. a lot of victories were happening, <laughs> right? But well, it was being such a in the minority. We don't like those times. <laughs> no, no. Hopefully, we won't go back to them anytime soon. It, it just felt like such a, a weird, in a weird way, such a blessing to kind of like see how the government actually works. And it was also very eye opening in all the ways that it did not work and it doesn't work. So that's kind of my journey. I, I just sort of felt like there was more that I could be doing. Besides, you know, living in Seattle where I'm from and, you know, answering phones and those sorts of things. And I just felt like I wanted to to try out something different. And so law school really gave me that, opened that door for me. There's lots of, you know, I don't necessarily recommend that everybody listening go to law school, <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah. but I met, I, I, I just feel like my law school experience really opened my eyes in a lot of ways, like really to left-leaning responses to structural problems. And so I feel like I carry that with me in my work now. I love that. We need to hear the good about going to law school because <laughs> I, I feel we hear a lot about the don't do it, don't do it. <laughs> so we love the positive stories. And I do want to talk about a lot of the work that you do around the Supreme Court. So we know we have another nomination that has been made. And you've been just very vocal about the Supreme Court, even before Kavanaugh, and he was a potential nominee, and we all know how that hearing went. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't think we want to dive into that today. <laughs> I, I still get so angry. Yeah. But how are you seeing the way the conversation has shifted? from a Kavanaugh to a Judge Brown Jackson. And really, you know, from where you're sitting, I know all of us, we can see the sexism and the racism mm -hmm. at play. But kind of like at the deeper level where you are, how are you seeing this play out in real time? Yeah, it was, um, it's been difficult. You know, I, I think the way re Republicans treated Brett Kavanaugh was, it was like, I still am so confused by it. There's so many, you know, conservative white male lawyers are a dime a dozen in DC. Mm -hmm. They could have replaced him easily at any time over the course of that confirmation hearing. But the fact that they stuck with this guy after he had like screamed and yelled and cried and had been talked about his love of beer. Yeah. And, you know, and all of this is happening because he was really credibly accused of, of sexually assaulting someone. Um, and they stuck with him. It, like what a message to send that like that their desire to overturn Roe versus Wade and to gut the Voting Rights Act and to make it impossible for the federal government to function. All of that is more important than what we just witnessed, this display of sort of bizarre and temperamental behavior from someone who's supposed to be sort of dispassionately, <laughs> uh, you know, interpreting the Constitution and all of the, these nationwide laws that affect all of us every day. And they stuck beside him. They could have replaced him with anybody else. They had time, you know, to do it. So that's, that really sticks with me even to this day that they really 
could have pretty easily swapped him out for somebody else without a lot of hassle. But the fact that they stuck with him just really sends such a kind of devastating message to, to the country. But contrast that with um, how things have been going for Ketanji Brown Jackson. I mean, even before her name was announced as the nominee, Republicans were attacking, you know, the nominee. It, they, she didn't even mm-hmm. exist yet, but they were already sort of right. racistly and sexistly saying, oh, she's not going to be qualified, or she isn't intelligent, or she's an affirmative action pick, or she's a diversity hire, which, by the way, obviously nothing wrong with affirmative action. But the the point that they're trying to make, they're trying to create a broader narrative, like meta-narrative about how people of color are, quote-unquote, yeah. stealing opportunities from more qualified white people. It's not true. It isn't happening. But she hadn't even been named yet when they were mm-hmm. already pursuing this line of attack. And then after she was named, it was weird. We saw a little bit of a, of a shift. Um, we've seen pretty positive reports coming out of the meetings that she's, she's going around the Senate as we speak, kind of taking courtesy meetings with every single senator. And even the Republican senators have nice things to say about her. They might not ultimately vote in favor of her nomination, but they are saying a lot of nice things about her and her temperament and her experience as a judge. We've really only seen two attempts, one from Marco Rubio and one from Josh Hawley, to really um, smear her her character. So two out of 50 is yeah. not bad, I guess. Uh, but all that to say, we'll see how this plays out in her confirmation hearings, where we expect Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz and a bunch of other Republicans to kind of make this a big story about how, mm-hmm. you know, she's soft on crime or she's um, a proponent of critical race theory or, you know, really doing a lot of dog whistles to the base about how she's scary and can't be trusted. And all of that mm-hmm. is is very firmly rooted in uh, racism and sexism and obviously not how they treated Brett Kavanaugh, Amy Coney Barrett or Neil Gorsuch. Yeah, we know they're going to have Tucker Carlson doing a lot of their bidding mm-hmm. for them. I mean, I completely right. lost my mind when he went the LSAT route. And I'm like, really? Oh, yeah. And now a quick word from our sponsor. After voters turned out in historic numbers in 2020, we're continuing to see state legislatures across the country pushing extreme anti-voter bills that will disproportionately impact Black, Brown, and young voters. This is Jim Crow 2.0. From Georgia to Arizona to New Hampshire, anti-democracy politicians seek to silence our voices and obstruct our efforts to have our say on important issues like access to health care, protecting our planet, reproductive justice, and more. Fair Fight Action is doubling down on their work to protect our freedom to vote. Visit Stop JimCrow2.com today to learn how you can help fight back against aggressive anti-voter efforts in your state and across the country during this important election year. You'll get updates from Fair Fight Action so you can plug into the movement to ensure all of our voices are heard. Thanks so much to our sponsor. Now, back to my conversation with Megan. A lot of it just reminded me about when then, you know, nominee Joe Biden talked about how he would have a woman vice president. And we saw all of the attacks starting. 
And then when the list of potential candidates came out, the Black women in particular got more hatred than anyone Mm -hmm. else. And I joined a coalition called Win With Black Women, which was like, Mm -hmm. hey, all of these Black women are qualified and you're not going to diminish them based upon their race and their gender. And now we are doing the same work with SCOTUS. Like even before there was the nominee, we got out and we're like, nope, you're not going to do this. Whoever it is, she is qualified. She is worthy. And it's just part of the ongoing attacks that Black women in particular have to face when they're up for something, but just also how, in my opinion, it's just systematic that there's a reason why, you know, a Black woman is there and those reasons are not because she's qualified. Mm-hmm. And it just, it irks me so. <laughs> yes, it should. You know, it's that old adage that, you know, Black women, Black people have to be twice as good. Mm-hmm to get to the same place as their white peers. It's, it's not fair. And I, and Ketanji Brown Jackson has already been met with so much vitriol. She doesn't obviously doesn't deserve it. I know she will be prepared and excellent during her confirmation hearings, but it's just so upsetting and sad that somebody of her stature or anybody that anybody would have to go through that to, to get this very prestigious job. She's obviously very well qualified. Obviously, there's there's no question about it. That's why they're making up all this other stuff about her. They're, they haven't been able to stick a substantive attack to her yet because there's there's right. nothing to attack she's, her over. She's, she's so great. wonderful. <laughs> Every time I hear her or see something that she said, I just fall more and more in love with her. Yeah, and that gets me excited about what an important voice she will be when she is on the Supreme Court. And what do you think that it will mean to have Supreme Court Justice Brown Jackson and how she will help influence the court and be a strong voice? I'm really just filled with unfettered joy, (laughs) I have to say. So first of all, this is the first Supreme Court nomination I've worked on where I actually want the person to be confirmed. (laughs) Every confirmation I've worked on in the past, I don't like the person and I would like them to be um, forwarded. I have not been successful uh, on that up to this point, but I feel really good about her confirmation and everyone, like I said, she's taking these courtesy meetings with senators and everyone has just been really impressed with her qualifications, her temperament and who she is as a person. But to your point, um, you know, representation isn't everything, but it's a, it's a lot. It means a lot to have a black woman on the court. It's been 223 years without a, a black woman on the court, and she'll only be the third black person overall to ever serve on the Supreme Court. So that, just that image of Ketanji Brown Jackson making it to the highest court in the land is, is just so meaningful. It really means a lot, but it's not just that she's a black woman. It's that she is excellent. Mm-hmm. Her experience is really good. Like she, she's not only going to be the first black woman on the Supreme Court ever, she'll be the first public defender to ever serve on the Supreme Court. There, and there's not been anybody with um, really significant criminal defense experience on the Supreme Court at all since Thurgood Marshall retired. So very sorely lacking perspective on the court at the moment. Um, they're almost all of them, if not all of them, are former prosecutors. 
you know, the Supreme Court, people should know, they, they rule on all sorts of different things. That includes criminal justice, um, criminal procedure, criminal justice reforms. Those are the types of cases that the Supreme Court will take, including, you know, death penalty stays, like people who are asking for their execution to be overturned or, or blocked from taking place. And this court, especially the conservatives, full of former prosecutors, are not approaching this with a holistic lens, shall we say. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so her professional experience is going to be such a huge boon to the Supreme Court. Now, I wouldn't want to put this on her shoulders. I don't necessarily think she's going to show up and there's something magical about her that's going to convince, say, Brett Kavanaugh or John Roberts to change their mind about some of these more hot button sort of cultural issues. But a lot of times, even in dissent, Supreme Court justices can have a lot of influence. And I think actually um, Justice Scalia understood this pretty well, that when you're writing a dissent, you should think about your audience. It's not the parties involved in the case. It's it's law students, because a lot of your cases are going to be published in case books, case law. Um, so when you're writing your dissent, you should be trying to think about that. Like, who can I influence or impact with this perspective? And ultimately, one day, with a better court, with a better Supreme Court, could this become the law? And so having her perspective as a former public defender, as somebody who, whose family member was caught up in the war on drugs, like, you know, had been serving a life sentence for like a low level drug crime. She really has a perspective that is really sorely lacking on the Supreme Court, not just because she's a black woman, but because she has this experience actually working with people who have been directly impacted by Supreme Court decisions because the rest of the justices really, I think it's easy for them to kind of issue these rulings that are really, that really harm people. They really harm people, but it's easy for them to do it because they're so insulated from the effects of their own decision-making. That's less true for Ketanji Brown-Jackson. And so I think she'll bring a level of empathy that's missing on the conservative side of the court. I'm so excited. I know it's going to be great. And Megan, for those who are listening, who want to support the efforts around Judge Brown-Jackson, what are some of the things that they can do? Yes. Well, you should be calling your senator, especially um, if you have a Republican senator. She should be supported by the entire Senate. I know some Republicans are trying to make up some stuff about her so that they can get out of having to vote for her. (laughs) But there are some senators who we think are gettable. I think Susan Collins of Maine, Lisa Murkowski, maybe even Mitt Romney is a possibility. Tom Tillis, Pat Toomey, Richard Burr. You can go to invisible.org if you're, if you want a call script and a number that you can call to actually contact your senators. And if you have a Democratic senator, just thank them for doing everything that they can to move this historic confirmation along. A lot of times we call our senators to complain, but it's always good to call and thank them from time to time too. And if folks are in the DC area during the confirmation hearings, there's going to be lots of stuff happening around uh, the Capitol in support of her nomination. So people should, honestly, if you just showed up in front of the Capitol, you'd find a rally. I promise. (laughs) (laughs) Megan, thank you so much for joining us. And before you go, one final question. Tell the BGG community one of your key lessons learned along your journey. Um. I think the most important thing I have learned as somebody who one likes to talk a lot and one who blurts stuff out without thinking is that you can actually take a beat and think about it before you say it out loud. (laughs) (laughs) So I think honestly, like my number one lesson learned is listen more, 
talk less and talk smart. Just take a minute to think about what you want to say. And not every thought needs to be articulated. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Megan, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciated having you. Thank you so much. Once again, we heard from a guest on how important it is for them to listen. One of the things I've learned along the way is to listen to understand and not to respond. It's so easy to be ready just to get out what we want to say and not truly take the time to fully understand what the other person is trying to say. And this can apply to both our professional and personal lives. For me, I love listening to what other people have to say because there are things that I can learn. I get to see a different point of view, I gain new information, and most importantly, people feel that I genuinely care about their opinion and what they have to say, which makes the conversation and future conversations with them easier. So in conclusion, Let's take the time to learn to be great listeners with a hopeful impact that we will teach others to be great listeners as well. Thank you so much to all of our listeners. Please take time to rate and review wherever you listen to your podcast. For more information on the Brown Girls Guide to Politics, check us out at www.thebgguide.com. And on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The BG Guide. The Brown Girls Guide to Politics podcast is produced by Wonder Media Network, and you can find them at WonderMediaNetwork.com. Check out our next episode where we'll be talking to New York City Council member Shahana Hanif, the first Muslim woman elected to the New York City Council and the first woman council member for her district. Until next time, Brown Girls. Hey, BGG fam. We have another podcast we think you would like from a fellow Brown Girl. If you want to learn how you can fix this broken world, check out Art of Power, a new kind of leadership podcast from WBEZ Chicago. Each week, award-winning journalist and best-selling author, Arthi Shahani, interviews fascinating people from all walks of life who've turned their passion into real-world impact. She focuses on outsiders, like herself, people who are excluded, who were told that they don't belong, but who broke through anyway. Her guests are household names, like President Barack Obama, and names you don't know, but should, like Gabby Pacheco, the dream activist who cornered Obama into action. No question is off limits. Arthi takes you through intimate and unexpected conversations. That's her superpower. What's yours? Listen to Art of Power today, wherever you get your podcast.